Magazine for Bill Crystal. All of the Panama Papers. From some guy I've never met in a prepper compound in Montana. Found him on eBay. And then also, you know, if you want to talk briefly about them cutting the funding for the Snowden archive, which yes. happened like a week and a half after the article. Uh, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, I, 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 I have to say I haven't I haven't looked into too much of like what the specifics were with that because I was like really, really sick at the time. I was like sick for about three weeks and I, I didn't eat for three weeks, actually. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty bad. Um, what did you so have? I, don't, I haven't read like the Barrett Brown stuff. I haven't read the Laura Poitras letter. Right. Um, so I don't want to get into specifics about that. But, you know, I'm happy to talk about how like basically the intercept, in my view, was like a, a PR project, which he had plenty of money to fund. So, uh, you know, I, I think that um, he saw it as no longer advantageous to have that for for whatever reason, whether that be his national security ties or the bad PR that he was getting. I, I do want to talk about the, uh, you know, end of the Snowden archive uh, to whatever extent you can. But yeah, like, it's just something that is so not, uh, like, there's so little consciousness, I feel like, about Omid Yar and his role in the world. So um, yeah, just generally, uh, you know, like, I, I think we'll do a lot of catch up for the audience. Uh, you know, okay. there's a lot of, uh, like you said, like these articles, uh, your series is just so long. It was almost like, uh, anyway, like I'll I'll get more into it, but yeah. I thought it was never gonna end, honestly, because <laughs> I kept finding new shit, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. it's incredible. So, um, thank you. Yeah, and Peter has been sick, uh, not like that kind of sick, but um, you know, he's uh, if he coughs, uh, that's that's what that is, and um, uh, you know, like I sent him the three articles uh, recently, and he was like, yeah, I just, like, couldn't read those recently, so, yeah, uh, I'm okay. to read through it. I'll be, um, playing the role of the audience and asking, uh, obvious questions. <laughs> okay, th no, that's great. That's, yeah. that's actually kind of a good dynamic in, in my view. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The News Never Ends. I'm Dan Ackerman. I'm Peter Ronson. And here with us, we're so happy to have a returning champion, Alex Rubenstein, or Rubenstein, undecided as of last episode, at least. Uh, a reporter <laughs> Rubenstein for, is fine. Yeah. Uh, Alex Rubenstein, a reporter for Mint Press News. Alex, last time you were here, you were with us talking about the prison uprisings that were uh, part of the lead up to the prison strike that was going to happen. I had to look this up because Peter was asking me about it before we started recording. And I realized basically you were here almost a year ago was the first time you were on the show. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was May 2018. So and so, you know what? Let me uh, let me give you a quick update. I've been hearing that the prisons in South Carolina are on lockdown. A lot of them, and and they're uh, kind of trying to. From the prisoners' perspective, I got this from a Twitter account run by prisoners. They're trying to break those who they have not broken yet. So it's it's not it's not much better on that front. Jesus, uh, is the prison strike the national one still going on? No, 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 no. 
Okay. Yeah, and I definitely recommend people check out that episode. We talked a little bit about North Korea and, you know, the history of U.S. war against the Korean Peninsula, hence the title of that episode, One Sausage Party State. We talked a little bit about, like, the Seth Rogen movie. Um, (laughs) uh, Classic reference. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone got it. But, yes, we're so happy to have you on again. Your reporting, I think, is really unique and important at this time. And certainly this series of articles that you've written with Max Blumenthal about Pierre Omidyar, uh, which is going to be the main topic of our conversation today, is something that I had kind of heard whisperings about this, uh, you know, network of Omidyar properties and relationships through Twitter or whatever. But, you know, there are very few places where you can see kind of a uh, a full examination of this guy's history and his associations. So I'm really excited to talk about this fresh issue with you. Great. Before we jump into it, uh, we also wanted to just talk a little bit about, uh, yeah, and you know, not let this go by, that we recorded our last week's podcast, I think a day before Assange was picked up in the UK, that he was taken out of the Ecuadorian embassy. And uh, I know that you've at least talked about Assange on Twitter. I don't know if you've written a ton about him, but I wanted to kind of get your read on that situation. Yeah, I- I haven't written too much um, about uh, Julian Assange. Even over the years, I haven't written a whole lot. Um, my colleague at Mint Press, her name is Whitney Webb. She's done some really fantastic reporting that was uh, leading up to his arrest when we were all kind of, even before uh, we were all kind of expecting it, when uh, Chelsea Manning was arrested, which was uh, something that I also reported on. She was, uh, of course, arrested for refusing to testify against him. And all this was happening kind of in the context of the Ecuadorian government trying to secure a, I believe it was a $10 billion loan from the IMF. So, you know, there's like a lot of people that are saying that he was arrested for various reasons, whether that be the uh, rape allegations in Sweden or whether that be uh, his collaboration with Manning in the past. But really, I think that one thing I've learned from doing uh, reporting on international affairs over the past few years is that timing is is really important and it's not an accident. And so I think that it's really, this should be viewed as uh, an attempt by the Ecuadorian government and its neoliberal president, uh, Lenin Moreno, to secure that loan from the IMF, which other reporting from my colleague at Mint Press, um, Whitney Webb, really gets into the IMF and how it's used as a vehicle by the, as a, as a soft power vehicle by the United States. Yeah. And I highly highly recommend that reporting. Yeah, and there's even, you know, internal documents where U.S. officials are referring to the IMF as kind of a, uh, not as kind of as explicitly a tool of economic warfare in U.S. foreign policy. Um, And and you'll never guess where those documents came from. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Um, I mean, God. That's nuts. Um, and, you know, is this guy, I don't know much about uh, Moreno, the head of uh, the premier in Ecuador, but is he like Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg where he has like a Marxist dad who named him Lenin? And then, Yeah, like, is he named yeah. after Vladimir Lenin? Yeah, that's right. And he's, uh, I, I think people were starting to get the idea that he was a neoliberal when he put out an arrest warrant for uh, Rafael Correa. Or is it Jose Correa? I'm, I'm sorry. It's the former, the former leader of Ecuador who uh, was uh, much more promoting socialist policies during his time in power. And he's, he's living in exile in Europe now. Wow. I, I didn't realize that. There's a lot going on in Ecuador that I feel like is really internationally significant. And I I remember reading recently, I should look up this guy's name, but uh, that there was a WikiLeaks collaborator, 
you know, a, a partner for WikiLeaks in some ways and just a dissident journalist who was also arrested in Ecuador right around this time, like a day before Assange or something like that. Yeah, uh, not good. No good. You know, I think I, I tweeted this and I, I really think that it's like important to note because like Assange has lost a lot of his uh, support in the United States over the past few years. And I think some of that is probably deserved. He's He said some things that are pretty right wing. I also know that the WikiLeaks account, there are a number of questionable journalists who have had access to that over the years. So it's not all Assange. It's it's definitely taken. There's definitely been, you know, some promotion of uh, borderline alt-right talking points. But I think that it's really important to remember that WikiLeaks is like 13 years old. And in that time, they've done more damage to Empire through their publishing than any other that I can think of, I mean, like the New York Times, the Washington Post, all these legacy outlets, they, they can't, you know, shake a stick at WikiLeaks. They, they've just, they haven't held truth to power like they have in those 13 years. And I think that's why, that's why the United States, at the end of the day, wants Julian Assange in its prisons um, so that it can break him, so that it can prevent him from publishing. Yeah, I actually do think that's a really interesting, uh, you know, road to go down, basically, is, uh, you know, the the things about Assange as a person and his personal connections that make him so disgusting, like his, you know, seeming history of anti-Semitism, which uh, I know a lot of that comes from also, uh, you know, tweets from the WikiLeaks account, which I don't know, might be other people who were working at those days, to, of course, the rape allegations. And I've been seeing, like, this back and forth on left Twitter about, you know, how much stock should we be giving? to those. It seems pretty clear to me that he, especially from the Laura Poitras documentary where he basically says his accusers are, you know, lesbian, radical, conspiracists or whatever. Other than sounding as if you're somebody who thinks that, you know, that, that this is all a mad um, feminist conspiracy, I don't think that's helpful to you. No, to say it publicly, it's not helpful. I know, but I'd like to persuade you that it isn't true as well. Privately, it's... It's, uh, it feels like it privately it's a social democratic party plus general influence from the government it's just a thoroughly tawdry radical feminist political positioning thing it's it's some um, some stereotype and you stumbled into this nest of, of yes I, she started the lesbian nightclub in Gothenburg. I mean, you know, but what people would say is, what, you know, what, if, what's her setting up a lesbian nightclub got to do with the price of fish? You know, no, no, it, it has, she's in that circle. That's that circle of. Yeah, she, she's she. You know, we, the fact that somebody who is a feminist and even a radical feminist doesn't mean. Deborah Krenz, the policewoman, may have been running as a tag team. Which you say, they go, they go to using that kind of language of saying they were running as a tag team and, and so on. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's making it in public, I just Part of the problem in this case is that there's, there's two women and, and the public just can't even keep them separate. So if there was one, you could go, she's a bad woman. Okay. I think that would have happened by now. You know, this, this person is a bad character, bad faith. And here's evidence that points for it. Because there's two, it's, it's much harder. 
But it seems pretty clear that he's at least a really horrible misogynist, and it seems pretty likely that he is a sexual assaulter. I saw one of the women who is accusing him has gone public with her name and everything since the uh, original, you know, prosecution was opened up, and uh, she's been, you know, she retweeted someone recently who was saying, I'm writing about Assange now, and I you know, just finished a section about his obsession with impregnating women, you know, which has to do with a lot with the allegations of, uh, you know, taking off a condom during sex or uh, damaging a condom or, you know, this obsession with unprotected sex. Yeah, and obviously, you know, he can be a horrible person and you can want him to face justice, but, you know, being murdered or tortured in a U.S. gulag is not justice, and uh, it's a clear message to other journalists. Yeah, you know, um, one thing on that that I'll say real quick, and I don't, I don't really take a position on on the allegations in Sweden. I don't know. I haven't done enough research personally, um, but he has said that he would testify there on the condition that he would not be extradited to the U.S. And you know, the the other thing that I think is important to keep in mind, and this is not to uh, discredit any accusers, but that there are a lot of allegations that are going around about him right now that are really hard to believe and actually follow a pattern of kind of what the media does after the capture of uh, an official U.S. enemy. For example, uh, Vice News and the Daily Beast were running allegations that uh, one of the reasons he was kicked out by Ecuador uh, was because he was smearing poop on the walls. Oh, yeah. And so, so like, of course, nothing to do with the, you know, IMF or anything like that. Uh, but I, I think that, so, and, and remember, you guys, I'm sure remember, uh, after Osama bin Laden was killed, um, there was the pornography thing. Oh, yeah. Um, there was Jose Noriega. I'm getting his name wrong again, I'm sure. Noriega. Um, but he was... Noriega was a was a strong man in, in Panama. This is and this comes from an article by Max Blumenthal of all people. Mm. You know they found like supposed voodoo stuff at his house and like tons of cocaine that turned out to be just flour, uh, tortilla flour. You know. Sure. Um, so I think I think that it's really important to examine all allegations against Assange very closely and not take any journalist at their word. Just like at face value, you know, um, you really got to look into the, the, the stuff yourself. And I, I haven't done that myself, unfortunately. I think that's super fair. And it's especially worthwhile keeping that in mind after the Glenn Greenwald, speaking of the intercept, I mean, it was just like a, a crazy time to have you on. Um, but you know, after the Glenn Greenwald NPR interview that maybe got scrubbed and then put back up, you know, where he's introduced as a colleague of Assange, but he's not, uh, <laughs> were you following this at all? Is there I any- missed that. That's hilarious. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it was amazing. Peter was the one who hit me to this. Yeah, I, so I, NPR had a short interview with Glenn Greenwald the morning that Julian Assange was arrested, and I shared it with Dan and a few other people because I just thought it was a great interview because Glenn Greenwald really went on and kind of piece by piece dismantled the narrative that NPR that morning was putting forward about the Assange arrest. So, so you believe even if the charges that we just heard about from the U.S. government, even if they are true, that, that Julian Assange was involved in actually cracking into the U.S. government and, and helping Manning, um, that, that that would not go beyond the definition of journalism? Well, it depends what they were able to prove. The Obama Justice Department tried for years to find evidence that Assange did more than uh, work with Manning in the capacity that journalists typically work with sources. Um, and concluded there was no evidence to be able to do that. They impaneled the grand jury in 2010. 
and spent years looking and said there was no evidence for that. Obviously, if Julian Assange actually hacked into a government database, that's just standard criminal hacking. But the indictment doesn't say that. The indictment says that Julian worked with Chelsea Manning and encouraged her um, in order to get these documents, which, again, is something journalists do all the time. Um, we'll have to see what the evidence says. Obviously, hacking is a crime, and just because you're a journalist doesn't mean you get to do that. But encouraging a source or working with a source to get documents is is pure investigative journalism. You know, they were saying they were it just felt very much like a continuation of of a lot of the kind of breathless reporting around the Russia conspiracy theory stuff where it was kind of like, what does this mean for Trump and the Trump Russia connection? Mm -hmm. And then Glenn Greenwald went on and he was very critical of that narrative that was being put forward. And like Dan said, he was also introduced as a colleague of Julian Assange and he which he's not. I want to bring in another voice here. It is Julian Assange's colleague, Glenn Greenwald. He's on the line. He's a longtime backer and proponent of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. Uh, Glenn, thanks for taking the time this morning. Sure. I'm not sure why you introduced me as a colleague of Julian Assange since I'm not actually that. I've reported on him as a journalist, um, but I'm happy to be with you. Well, well to tell, I, I would love if you could actually, um, just so people understand, characterize your, your relationship with him and with WikiLeaks. Sure. I'm a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who has reported on WikiLeaks over the years, just like NPR has. And beyond that, I don't have any relationship with WikiLeaks or Julian Assange, and I'm not sure why you're trying to imply otherwise. Have you been in contact with him today or, or leading up to this? No. Yeah, right. He's right. Not, and he immediately went after them for characterizing him that way. But so anyway, I thought it was an interesting interview and and it had some good information about the Assange stuff. So I shared it with Dan and a few other people. And then, yeah, maybe an hour later, you clicked on the link and it wasn't there anymore. They had taken <laughs> the interview down without acknowledging it. And Dan, is, did you say that it's back up now? Yes, apparently. I haven't actually clicked on the link, but NPR tweeted something saying, uh, you know, we are not sure what happened. It was a mistake, but yeah. it's definitely up again, which, you know, you said they were going to do. Like, obviously. Yeah, like, of say. course, they Yeah, they were going to do that at some point. Yeah, but no, and it was, it was a five-minute interview uh, sandwiched between you know, people talking about, uh, like, the the Trump-Russia connection, just all this kind of, uh, you know, uh, painting Assange as, like, it's probably likely what the indictment says, that he's a hacker, which is not what the indictment says, and all this stuff. Um, so, you know, it was five minutes out of maybe half an hour of reporting that you could get on the website, and when you went to the link that uh, Peter sent me, um, and people noticed this on Twitter, this isn't just like our experience, uh, you went there and the page still had the description that said, you know, an interview with Glenn Greenwald, with this interviewer, and it was a different NPR correspondent altogether, and it was just totally different. It was like 15 minutes of other audio about the coverage, so it was a really bizarre situation. So yeah, I think threatening an, a foreign government to withdraw legally recognized asylum is a pretty severe violation of international law. Do you have evidence of that? I mean, do you have actual reporting that the Trump administration has, has exerted that kind of pressure? There's tons of reporting about that. If you go to Google and type uh, Trump administration pressures Ecuador over Assange, you'll find every major media outlet in the world. I don't know how you missed it. Probably NPR has reported it too, um, saying exactly that. Journalist Glenn Greenwald, thanks so much. We appreciate your time this morning. Wow. Yeah. Also, you know, that that makes me think of one thing, which is like this slew of 
uh, reports, like just it seems like all the journalists are saying, what do, what does this mean for Trump and Russia when they should be saying, what does this mean for journalists? Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I saw so much of this just scrolling through Twitter, but then also like the Washington Post editorial about Julian Assange, where really it, it feels like these mainstream journalists can only think about this in terms of what it means for Trump and specifically this idea that Trump is in you know, in a constant state of imminently being indicted for a conspiracy with Russia and that, you know, somehow this is a plot against Trump to, you know, learn new information about the 2016 election versus the the what is obviously the real situation, which is that this is entirely being led by Trump and Barr, his attorney general, breaking with the precedent that Obama and Holder had set of not pressing these charges. And, you know, Obama and Holder were no friends of uh, of journalism, but even they resisted doing this. So it, it is clearly just a an unprecedented crackdown on the free press that um, Trump is behind. But for some reason, it feels like a lot of mainstream journalists are choosing to interpret it as somehow this strike against Trump. Right. And that Assange isn't a real journalist, according to Jelani Cobb, of all people. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I just uh, I, I wouldn't give too much credit to uh, Obama and Holder. Um, one thing that I learned uh, through uh, the reporting that I was doing around the grand jury subpoena against uh, Chelsea Manning a few months ago was uh, that this is like uh, they, they had been convening grand juries against Assange for quite some time and they were never really successful, but they kept like re, re uh, convening and reconvening and they can keep doing that. There's nothing preventing them from doing that. And yeah, I think that uh, it has to be viewed as uh, something which is being directed by the administration or at least, or at least um, some of the other agencies powers that be in Washington based off of, solely where he is facing this charges, which is the Eastern District of Virginia. Um, this is uh, a court which is uh, referred to as the rocket docket because um, they really push through cases at a lightning speed. And there's never been a national security case that was lost there. You look at the jury pool and it's all it's all people that work for defense contractors, you know? Yeah. And, you know, maybe just to wrap this up on the, you know, charge that he speared, that he smeared feces on the walls of the Ecuadorian embassy or whatever, uh, you know, he's been living under horrific isolating conditions for the longest time. I remember the people who were cheering when he got his internet his, uh, internet access cut off, uh, isolating him even more. You know, like, it wouldn't surprise me if he was doing the kind of things that people in solitary confinement end up doing, like those bits of psychosis. And the fact that he was able to still skateboard through all of that, I think that just proves <laughs> you can never put the press freedom down, really. Just because, Alex, you had mentioned just how important some of the the information that we learned from WikiLeaks, some of the reporting that WikiLeaks has done has been, and you even said that it was more, you know, it 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 was more consequential than any of the reporting that the New York Times had done in that time or possibly even in their history. Could you recall any of the major revelations from that 20, uh, 2010 WikiLeaks dump? 2010, uh, I don't know. I don't have the years down. Um, but there was, of course, most recently, not maybe not most recently, but there was the Vault 7, uh, which showed that the CIA uh, was able to 
basically hack and leave breadcrumbs to make it look like it was the Russians or the Chinese. There were the Guantanamo files. There were uh, there was collateral murder and and a lot of lesser known ones. There was I mean this IMF one, which basically showed how how it's a vehicle for U.S. soft power. There, uh, you know, I would I would recommend to anyone just to go to the wiki wikipedia page for wikileaks you know there's been uh, a few um there's this uh, great twitter account called historically which uh noted that i mean i mean and let's not forget they uh they blew the lid off of uh the dnc rigging the 2016 election against bernie sanders right um right so yeah i i think there's a lot more that i'm not getting to uh there was the um the diplomatic cables but uh i, I really think people should like just go to the Wikipedia page and read about their publishing history. It's yeah, really incredible. There's there's nothing like it. Uh, my favorite WikiLeak, which was from the Podesta emails, is that Citibank chose Obama's cabinet in 2009. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. And I feel very strongly that as Americans, we have a right to know that. I, I agree. Yeah. And, and you know, I actually think that it's, it's really cool that we're doing these two topics today because there's two styles of, of, of covering leaks, you know, these massive troves of documents, government secrets. And uh, one of them is, is the WikiLeaks style, which is where you just put it all up there. And the other style is the Intercept style, Flash Snowden style, which unfortunately uh, is no longer effective. Basically, I mean, they were saying that it was too expensive to keep doing this stuff and that they were going to give it to a university or nonprofit or something who could who could better handle this review of documents they're going through line by line and and deciding what to disclose rather than just putting it up there. And personally, I, I favor the uh, the former option, the WikiLeaks option. Yeah, and I... I think this is a great transition. Uh, before we do that, just like a two-second thing, you mentioned this account historically. For some reason, I had them muted for a long time. Uh, I don't know what they <laughs> tweeted that must have annoyed me. But I saw that they did this thread of the some of the lesser-known and lesser-credited re- revelations out of WikiLeaks. Uh, there's stuff about, and people forget, you know, this was a major motivating factor behind the whole Arab Spring uh, cycle, you know, that Kenya had its... Uh, elections heavily influenced by these revelations. One of the first things historically cites in this thread that we'll post in the episode description so you can see it, dear listener, is, you know, Daniel Moy, the president of Kenya, abused his position to launder over $500 million in 30 countries. The revelation that the U.S. government, you know, the definitive confirmation that the U.S. government used chemical weapons in Afghanistan, that's from WikiLeaks. Uh, There's a ton of stuff here. But let's move on uh, because we're already, you know, pretty far into the app. Let's transition rightly to your series of articles, Alex, which are really fascinating. And it's amazing, you know, you, so this is just to give people the context. This is a series of three articles. Correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, by the way, but it's sure. a, you know, it's a partnership writing collab. Alexander Rubenstein x Max Blumenthal, the collab we've all been waiting for. It's <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Featuring. Uh, yeah. I've been waiting for it too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At Mint Press News, which is, you know, Alex's new home since leaving. Uh, Sputnik was the outlet you were at right before Mint Press, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah. So it's these three monster articles, both in just like how interesting they are and in their length. They're not a, a short.
short read. It's kind of like if you put these three together, they would be, uh, you know, like the uh, like the length of Ta-Nehisi Coates' book or something like that. But <laughs> that's um, <laughs> about thirty pages in Google Documents. Is that right? That's awesome. Including including the images, yeah. Jesus, but it's fascinating, and it's basically a rundown of one of the people who is most influential without getting credited for his influence. At least you know he is. Let's say he's like undercredited for his influence to the greatest degree of the billionaires, maybe, who's influencing what you see and, you know, just generally how our world is running. And this is Pierre Omidyar, the eBay billionaire, who I think you rightly credit as being most well known for putting up the money and running still The Intercept, which is you know, seen by a lot of people as this, what's the word? I mean, uh, fearless adversarial journalism is what they, that's the marketing term that they use is fearless adversarial journalism. That's so humble of them. Um, (laughs) But that's the idea, right? Is this was, you know, the intercept, I think people know it as kind of the, they, they remember, especially that founding team of, you know, this troika of uh, Jeremy Scahill, um, uh, Laura Poitras, and of course, Glenn Greenwald, who has more and more, I think, become the face of The Intercept, and has since broken with Laura Poitras over uh, a lot of the, these issues that you're talking about. But anyway, there are these three articles, and it can be, I mean, it's it's a ton of material here. Like I said, it's kind of a mini book, and it can be a little bit hard to parse how you've divided these into these three sections. But basically, the first section, the first article, in this series is titled How One of America's Premier Data Monarchs is Funding a Global Information War and Shaping the Media Landscape. Alexander Rubenstein and Max Blumenthal. And this is kind of about just setting the stage for these are the organizations that this guy has started and runs, and this is kind of the uh, hold that he has over global information. Uh, The second article, and again, uh, correct me uh, at the end if I'm getting any of this wrong or if you see them differently, the second article is Pierre Omidyar's Funding of Pro-Regime Change Networks and Partnerships with CIA Cutouts that has more to do with Uh, And I honestly, when I started reading this, the first couple paragraphs in, I thought, this is kind of like an updated version of Francis Stoner Saunders' Cultural Cold War book about the fronts for CIA cultural soft power and U.S. soft power over the world. And then I noticed that uh, a couple paragraphs down, one of the sections is titled Omidyar's Cultural Cold War. So (laughs) I don't know if that was in the back of your head or Max's, but I mean, it, it comes across pretty clearly and the parallels I think are pretty obvious. And just to wrap it up, the third and funniest section is um, <laughs> Pierre Omidyar, a billionaire prone to reclusiveness and his trove of state surveillance secrets. You know, Alex, I wanted to say first, you know, you definitely front load with the most important stuff. But as a human interest, interested human, I think you really buried the lead with uh, this third <laughs> article being the third one. Like, can we talk a little bit about this guy's second life character? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really happy to do that, actually. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, uh, yeah, he, uh, Piero Midiar, uh, he, he made his fortune through um, eBay. And uh, one of the um, earliest that I could see, I, I could be very wrong about that, but one of the earliest companies that he invested in was uh, this company called Linden Labs, which is the company which produces a game called Second Life. And I, I'm hesitant to use the word game because there's not really an objective to it. You playing that game again? Second Life is not a game. It is a multi-user virtual environment. It doesn't have points or scores. It doesn't have winners or losers. Oh, it has losers. I signed up for Second Life about a year ago. 
Back then, my life was so great that I literally wanted a second one. In my second life, I was also a paper salesman, and I was also named Dwight. Absolutely everything was the same, except I could fly. Uh, yeah, it's so much more than a game. Right. I mean, that sounds like some strong marketing for Second Life, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's really uh, it's really troublesome. Like, I actually feel bad for people that get sucked into this kind of stuff. Um, and I don't mean that in a mean way. I like I actually feel bad for them because what it tries to do is it tries to get you to create your second life through this avatar. So, I mean, one image that we included was from a promotional video for Second Life, and it says, "Love your." life you know it's like well right. you should probably love the real life that you're living um yeah. or, or at least work towards that so it's it's very escapist and there's no set objective and it was uh, piero midiar happened to play it uh, a lot actually and he invested in linden labs for its for second life basically um touting i forget the quote exactly but saying oh here it is it's uh it's revolutionary form of shared experience which is sad in its own right. His uh, his avatar on this game, uh, th and this is not solely my work. This was a, 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 this was uncovered um, years ago, actually. So I don't want to take credit where where it's not due. But his his avatar is a is a black man by the name of Kito Mandala. Um, <laughs> wow. And uh, he uh, he wears a shirt and it says "Kiss me, I'm lawful evil," and uh, or "Kiss me, I'm uh, chaotic uh, neutral" or something. You know. Um, okay, that's epic. <laughs> and you know he it was written about in this long profile and um in, I believe it was the New Yorker um that he I, would I think it's New York spotted Magazine. around town riding a Segway. Yeah. Um, which is like, you know, Segway is like when I see somebody riding a Segway in DC, I'm like, damn, your life must kind of suck. Imagine <laughs> doing that. It's also like Second Life. Uh, I think a lot of people know it from the Office episode where Dwight gets a Second Life and he can fly. Like, why would you be on a Segway in your virtual reality? <laughs> I, I I couldn't tell you. I haven't seen that, but I, you know, I may have to now. Um, um, and is was. Pierre Omidyar's experience on Second Life, like, politically activating to him? Was this part of his, his move into politics? Or into I don't, I don't think, I don't think so, some, uh, really, but I know that he would talk to his business partners through this. Even the owner of Linden Labs, he would only talk to him on Second Life. Um, there's this one quote from the New York Magazine, it wasn't the New Yorker, it was New York Magazine uh, article, from uh, the the uh, owner of um, Linden Labs, and he's just saying, you know, Pierre has been such a reclusive guy for the past few years, and uh, even after, this is from the uh, reporter, even after Omidyar became a Linden Lab investor, the owner, whose name is Rosendale, uh, would primarily interact with his animated avatar. So he was doing this, I think, for both business and pleasure. And uh, we'll get into the pleasure part in a, in a yep. second. That's making me think of Steve Bannon, who um, was obsessed with World of Warcraft. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's pretty clear. I mean, I don't know. Uh, it, you definitely don't say this explicitly, but I think it uh, comes across between the lines in these articles that this virtual reality interest kind of fits, you know, like novelistically with this guy's whole deal. You know, this third section also has to do with his kind of new age persona that he has, um, you know, he has funded and promoted both the Dalai Lama and some associates of the Dalai Lama who are even more um, nefarious, let's say. The original gamers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, uh, Nirvana grinders. Uh, so he's um, he's interested in all this kind of like you know getting out of reality, like the uh, illusion of reality, you know, and promoting that idea. Uh, at the same time that he is fascinated and has built his fortune on surveillance capitalism, and this uh, is is really interested in funding these mood meter websites and shit like that, um, where he seems to be uh, interested in like getting the pulse of people through these electronic uh, signals and being able to direct them that way. So this is maybe getting ahead of ourselves, but just to talk about who this guy is, because I think a lot of people, I, I think some of the reason that he hasn't become as big a household name as maybe George Soros or uh, Jeff Bezos or one of the other billionaires is that he is such a recluse that he, you know, seems to value his privacy at least. And, you know, people will introduce him at conferences when he speaks at like the, what was it, the Henry Ford Innovation Museum or whatever. They'll introduce him by saying, yes, he actually does exist. Um, I know you might not think so. Oh, I I remember that. Uh, but I, I, I don't remember the organization. But yeah, yeah. That, that, was, that was pretty funny. But at the same time, he is also just a singularly idiosyncratic guy. He doesn't fit into a lot of the stereotypes that I think we have of someone like Jeff Bezos, who, you know, uh, originally wanted to call Amazon ruthless. You know, he is just kind of this totally of the ideology of, like, ruthless, dominating capitalism. And I think we kind of get that in the U.S., at least. We kind of have an image of who that is. You know, Soros, uh, obviously we have a bunch of other stereotypes that come in with that guy, a lot of them really harmful. But there doesn't seem to be, like, a neat little box to put Omidyar into, and I think that has helped his, you know, anonymity in a way. Can you tell a little bit about, like, who this guy is, where he comes from? Well, sure. Uh, you know, real real quick, just to backtrack sure. to Second Life, because I, you know, this is just too funny to miss, and I yeah. hope everyone looks at it in the article. There are uh, pictures of his avatar, Kito Mandala, <laughs> at the United Nations, but also in, you know, like a sex dungeon. And, yes, and, yeah. Um, he's in bondage, and one of the captions that he posted on his Flickr account is uh this isn't a hammock isn't it is it or uh this isn't a dentist chair is it and he's it's, it's really wild stuff and you can find that in, in again part three of the article but you know just to circle back to your points what i said in the article is that the uh the quito mandala like the eccentric billionaire that operates him wears many hats and he's he's certainly not like a kingpin type right he's not you're right he's, he doesn't fit into into a box and you know a lot of people were asking me like what what makes this guy tick when i was working I spent about a month on this on this stuff, and I, I I really struggled to answer that question. I still don't really have an answer. I think that he's definitely a bit of a, megal a megalomaniac, or however you say that. And I think that I mean he he positions himself as like an anti-establishment entrepreneur who's like trying to foster all these like fact-checking initiatives, and basically he's concerned with truth. But you know. It, at least that's how he presents himself. But I, I, I think that he's a bit confused. You know, I don't I, I, I think, you know, the thing about Amazon and and, um, and eBay is they created two of the richest men in the world. Oh, in fact, Amazon created the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos. But if you think about these ideas, they're not really novel ideas. It's basically something which has existed for all of you know modern human history, which is like a marketplace, and it's just a marketplace online. So I don't I don't you know know how smart these guys actually are. They just I think they uh, happen to be at the right place at the right time and were able to surround themselves with people who uh, were able to foster, help foster their business. And I'm sure that they are very talented in their own right, but they're, you know, I'm really against this, like 
billionaire genius concept that we have in the U.S., which, you know, it's like people do that with Elon Musk all the, uh, a lot right, these days. Right. And it's like, uh, you know, they project this kind of billionaire genius onto him. And, you know, it's like it's not like uh, Elon Musk is with Grimes and she's writing her songs and he's drawing up blueprints for the next uh, SpaceX <laughs> project. You know, he's, they've, they have teams of people that help with these things. So I, I think that Omidyar, I think he may be a bit over his head. He doesn't. If you look at his Twitter page. He doesn't really seem like the brightest guy. Um, and, and so, you know, he's he's a confusing character. He's a very interesting character. And I think that part of what's so troubling about this worship of the Dalai Lama, uh, for example, his association with um, the Dalai Lama's U.S. fixer, uh, who has a very troubling record that we can get into, mm-hmm. um, and his, his uh, enthusiasm for second life and stuff like that, is, is really only troubling because he wields so much power over the media and wields so much power in foreign countries uh, in partnerships with CIA cutouts like uh, the National Endowment for Democracy and U.S. Agency for International Development. Just in terms of the parallels between him and Bezos, there was a moment where he almost was our Bezos because I didn't realize this until reading your article, but he bid to buy the Washington Post and was beaten by Jeff Bezos. So he almost was that role for us. Right, right. And and actually, I would say, you know, I haven't I haven't looked into Bezos's record too much, but we all kind of know at this point that he has billion dollar contracts with the CIA. While I didn't find any direct relations between Omidyar and the CIA, I would say that it's quite likely that Omidyar has a closer relationship with various, with the conglomeration that is like the U.S. intelligence apparatus, right? He's very close to them. He, he has so many different projects throughout the world. Uh, they've been working hand in hand with one another on. And again, this is all really troubling when when you get this image of this guy who's just like basically a video game addicted teenager, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, you know, it does kind of seem like they've divided the world that way, that Amazon is tight with ICE and this guy is tight with the CIA. Right. I wanted to read just a bit from your article because I thought you sum up pretty well early on, you know, why we should be troubled by this guy's influence and uh, what kind of influence he's putting out into the world. And I think it's also something I'd like to dissect a little bit with you because I think even this list can be a little baffling for people who, you know, even people who are into international affairs and they're like, okay, well, what do all these things have in common? Like, what is this guy's motivating principle? It's right at the start of your first article, just a couple paragraphs down. Unlike rival Silicon Valley billionaires Peter Thiel, who was also made his money off of PayPal and other um, Omidyar uh, venture, Um, Jeff Bezos and Eric Schmidt, Omidyar has mostly managed to keep his influential role in media below the radar, and while he directs his fortune into many of the same politically strategic NGOs and media outlets that George Soros does in hotspots around the globe, he has never been subjected to the public scrutiny and often ugly attacks that dog Soros. And yet Samantha Power, the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and liberal interventionist guru, has explicitly praised Omidyar as someone who is following in the footsteps of Soros. Um, You say later down, behind the image he has cultivated of himself as a progressive philanthropo- philanthropreneur, you have to take a running start at that, um, 
uh, mix of words. Uh, Omidyar has wielded his media empire to advance the Washington consensus in strategic hotspots around the globe. His fortune helped found an outlet to propel a destabilizing coup in Ukraine. He's helped establish a network of oppositional youth activists and bloggers in Zimbabwe. And in the Philippines, he has invested in an oppositional news site that is honing corporate surveillance techniques like a, quote, mood meter to capture non-rational reactions, end quote. Meanwhile, he has partnered closely with the leading arms of U.S. soft power from the U.S. Agency for International Aid and Development, USAID, USAID, however you pronounce that, to the National Endowment for Democracy, NED, acting as a conduit for information warfare-style projects in countries around the world. So, you know, this is basically the summary of all the things you talk about in this, you know, enormous set of articles later. I think it might be uh, easiest before we get into, yeah, I don't even know. Do you think it's easier to understand these connections or do you even understand if there's like a through line through all these things? Do you think it's easier to take them one at a time or is there some kind of motivating ideology that you feel like starts to explain them before you even get into the specifics of Zimbabwe, the Philippines, Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, I think that basically his allegiance to the State Department is is pretty evident through most of his stuff. And he is a staunch capitalist. And so the projects that he's invested in have kind of served those ends to either further State Department objectives or U.S. objectives and to kind of rebrand capitalism and give it a, a progressive veneer. And, and so I think those are like the two kind of main trends. But also, you know, I, the, the weird part about this stuff, and we didn't even get into everything in the article, we just couldn't, is that he's uh, kind of obsessed with journalism, whether that's funding and directing movies that are or producing, I, sh- I should say, not directing, movies that portray journalists in their feats or just funding, you know, countless outlets and fact checkers and media raters and, and like a whole I mean, anything you can imagine. He, he seems uniquely obsessed with journalism. Like it, it, it's like his like alt superhero alter ego is like a journalist or something. It's, it's, it's very strange. But yeah, I would say that those three, three things, defining journalism and shaping the media, uh, partnering with the CIA or, or not the CIA, but the you know, U.S. In, in intelligence cutouts and rebranding capitalism and, and making money. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually, I think, a good end to uh, what we were referencing with The Intercept and the uh, Snowden archive. So maybe this is a good time. Could you talk a little bit about his uh, Omidyar's role in starting The Intercept and First Look Media, some of the parts of it that maybe people aren't as familiar with, like these documentaries and uh, you know other films, and talk a little bit about the closing of the Snowden archive? Yeah, um, so Pierre Omidyar lost his bid for the Washington Post to Jeff Bezos. And after that, he started First Look Media and um, and through First Look Media, The Intercept, and also all these other companies. Um, there's one called uh, Field of Vision, which does documentaries. And, and basically all their documentaries are like written up by uh, Intercept writers and, and given glowing reviews. And then there's Topic, which is like uh, the for-profit arm of First Look Media. And that's been involved in just like a ton of uh, movies and documentaries that uh, have to do with journalism or have to do with the Snowden leaks or 
Uh, they even have an upcoming film about Chelsea Manning coming out. And, you know, I would really urge people, you know, even if you don't get a chance to read my article, I, I put together a graphic, which, you know, you may look at it for a moment and go, oh, my God, this guy's a crazy conspiracy theorist. I felt a little <laughs> bit like one when I was making it. But basically uh, what I did with this is I showed how his his empire works by linking from the different characters and companies that he's involved with and um drawing lines you know so like a a blue line indicates that he owns something a green line indicates that he funds it and uh, an orange line indicates that he's associated some other way which is for the most part spelled out in the article so i would just take a look at that uh if people are interested um to see just how vast his uh connections are the scope of his um his media ventures uh it's really mind-blowing there was a term you used in here that i hadn't heard before but i think i get the sense of it log rolling i'm thinking there's this particular paragraph at the so it's describing his role in ukraine funding these ngos uh along with usaid funding these ngos that eventually stoke the maidan protest movement and the orange revolution that you know seem to it seems like their whole purpose is to establish a u.s and you know west european eu friendly movements in uh, uh, Ukraine, even to the point of, uh, you know, a coup in 2004. And there was this uh, paragraph, in the months leading up to Euromaidan, Omidyar partnered with the U.S. Embassy in Kiev to found, I, I'm sorry for uh, butchering this Ukrainian word, uh, Romadske, a Ukrainian broadcast <coughs> news channel that carried the message of regime change day after day. Recently, Romadske hosted a radio program that formed part of the Omidyar-funded International Fact-Checking Network. Uh, another thing, you know, I would love to talk to you about. Um, at the 2018 award ceremony of the Committee to Protect Journalists, another Omidyar-backed organization, Ukrainian journalist Anastasio Stanko was handed the International Press Freedom Award. Stanko happened to be a founder of the Omidyar-backed Romadske Thus, the log rolling continued, unabated and unacknowledged by the journalists celebrated for supposedly holding powerful interests accountable. Is the idea basically, it's this kind of sleight of hand that, you know, you found an organization to give press freedom awards, and somehow those awards tend to go to the journalists that you are funding? Well, it seems a bit like a quid pro quo, right? Basically, the, I mean, so the log rolling term came from Max. Uh, I, I should just say that right away. But basically, the idea is that these arms of Omidyar's media empire, um, whether they don't all belong to him, but they're all funded by him, at least the ones that we covered in, in the article, they basically work in support of each other. Um, so there's like mutual praise. They might get a good write-up. One organization might get a good write-up by another one of these organizations that are funded by Omidyar. And then in turn, we'll see, oh, um, well, they just, they were given an award by the uh, organization that, you know, got the good write-up. So um, it, it's, it's a bit of quid pro quo and uh, double dealing. Another term I can think of is uh, incestuous, just to define like the relationships that these outlets that are funded by him have with one another and, and how they deal with one another. Uh, it, it's really troublesome. And, and we just kept finding countless examples. I mean, there's you mentioned Anastasia Stanko. Um, in the Philippines, there was exactly the same dynamic with uh, Maria Ressa, who is the editor-in-chief of the Omidyar-funded Rappler. Um, and she was uh, uh, awarded, uh, given awards by the Omidyar-funded Committee to Protect Journalists. So there's countless examples of that. And, and we may not have even included all of them, 
um, just because the sheer scope of this article was so so vast. We we kept having to readdress what we were doing with this because there was just so much there that was hard to um, digest and and make coherent, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just to hone in on the intercept access, uh, you know, uh, the intercept angle, because I think we've strayed a little bit from it, and that's my fault more than anything. Uh, you know, we have actually had Murtaza Hussein on the podcast, who's someone who gets name-checked in your story, so I kind of have to take you to task for calling out a friend of the pod like that. <laughs> this has to do, and I think this is interesting, um, it has to do, I think, uh, to some degree with the trouble that Max Blumenthal, your co-author on this series, has had recently with his new book, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this too. But I wanted to read this section. It's another example of this kind of uh, one hand of the empire, uh, you know, handing something off to another, um, about the specifically about the uh, White Helmets, uh, who are a really controversial group, let's say that. This is in the Omid Omidyar's Cultural Cold War section. While quietly partnering with USAID and a firm at the forefront of the fight to keep the agency relevant, Omidyar, along with a select group of fellow billionaires, is also performing a critical service by providing a private funding channel for cultural vehicles that advance the agenda of Western foreign policy. At the 2018 Sundance Film Festival, a short buddy comedy called The Climb generated a minor buzz. Weeks later, it was snapped up by a studio called Topic through its digital storytelling platform. The studio turned out to be a for-profit arm of Omidyar's First Look Media, which invests heavily in filmmaking and documentary production. The film festival also happened to be a beneficiary of Omidyar's spending, with Luminate donating to the Sundance Institute for Creation of Films, used strategically to articulate pressing public issues and movement-building campaigns. That's a quote from them, I guess, from the Sundance Institute. Lum um, Luminate, which is, which is one of the mm. investment arms. Omidyar has about six investment arms. That's one of the main ones. Gotcha. Gotcha. So Robert Redford is a USAID stooge, too, I guess. A a among the films cited by Omidyar's Luminate as a strategic success was The Last Men in Aleppo, an Oscar-nominated propaganda vehicle for the Syrian White Helmets that was produced by the Sundance Institute. The White Helmets are a Syrian insurgent-aligned quote, civil rescue group founded in Turkey by a British former military intelligence officer. Operating exclusively in rebel-held territory, including in the Al-Qaeda-controlled Idlib province, the White Helmets have been funded by USAID, the UK Foreign Office, and the Qatari monarchy. Through its UK-based public relations arm, the Syria Campaign, the White Helmets were at the forefront of a public relations push for US airstrikes and sanctions against the state of Syria. Omidyar's The Intercept served as a vehicle for that PR campaign, featuring a piece by staff writer Murtaza Hussein that read like a press release for the White Helmets. So, two questions for you, Alex. First of all, why do you hate The Intercept? And two, <laughs> and, uh, two uh, what, uh, why do people hate Max Blumenthal? What is this White Helmets controversy that he's gotten caught up in? And um, could you talk a little bit about his uh, book tour that's uh, run into a couple of snags? Yeah, so, you know, to answer your first question, I don't hate The Intercept. I actually think that they've done a lot of really strong reporting over the years. And as an alternative journalist or, or a non-mainstream journalist, I would like to see The Intercept thrive. So this shouldn't be taken as an effort to uh, malign The Intercept or any of its reporters, but offer constructive criticism and also detail the empire that its owner and sole shareholder operates. So yeah, I just I just think that's like, I don't want anybody to come from this saying, 
oh, you know, he's trying to destroy the interceptor or anything like that. Cause that, that wasn't the goal. And, uh, and certainly, uh, both Max and I would like to see the intercept improve in certain ways. And, and, you know, uh, and I've been criticizing them for a long time. And I think, uh, this goes back to the WikiLeaks stuff where basically they privatized the Snowden. Piero Midiar has privatized the Snowden documents. We have just a fraction of their contents published today. Yet The Intercept has been rolling out with these Snowden revelations pretty consistently since they were founded. And things like one of the princes in Saudi Arabia ordering rebels to, quote, light up Damascus on the anniversary of the uprising. This was something that happened just weeks before Snowden gave Greenwald the documents. And it took like five years or something for like that for that to come out. So I think that this is information that would have been good to have for a long time. And there's probably a lot more information like that, that we should really, the public deserves to have. I mean, I think that we can hardly call them leaks if if we haven't seen them yet. And one thing that The Intercept was trying to do for a time was create a secure reading room in, in New York City for journalists to access the documents. And that never happened. I wasn't able to get an explanation on why that didn't happen. And and this gets, you know, this serious stuff, this this connects with uh, the controversy over Max, where he he's basically uh, gotten a lot of flack from journalists who are primarily based out of New York City. Brooklyn in particular, who uh, are very supportive of uh, the goals of the Syrian so-called revolution. I wouldn't characterize this conflict as that. Uh, I would I would characterize it as a, a Western and Gulf-funded uh, proxy war. But uh, a lot of people have supported this goal, the goals of this, which is namely to um, have a regime change. And uh, I think that, you know, Max, like some of his colleagues, like myself, felt pretty strongly about Syria, but very differently about Syria for a time. And uh, we kind of got wise to what was happening, whether that was individually or through discussion with one another. I don't I don't know. And I was separate from all that. But I think that because he came out with this article, which exposed the White Helmets as being basically a uh, organization that was created by a PR firm and founded by a former British military intelligence officer and funded by the by, you know, the United States and the UK and uh, the Qatari government, that's been really damaging towards one of the strongest propaganda cudgels that the Syrian opposition has had. And and basically, I mean, uh, whether the White Helmets actually saves people or not is, is not something that we've ever, uh, that, that I know that Max has ever like tried to dispute. But he did do journalism and he released facts and those facts were uh, not beneficial towards towards uh, for some of these people. You know, the other thing that I think is important to note is that uh, the White Helmets have been given free reign to operate in uh, rebel-held ter- territory and Al-Qaeda-held territory, places where Western journalists can't visit because if they do, they'd be kidnapped and sold for ransom. And uh, they have not operated, and by operate, I mean saved lives in any areas that are under assault by government control, but under assault by uh, these so-called moderate rebels. And so you see that it's like, you know, and, and then there's also the question of fabricating evidence, because some of this stuff is just so slickly produced that it's it's almost hard to believe. There are videos that I've seen from Syria, which are less slickly produced and obvious, obvious fakes. I mean, you just look at it and it's like obviously fake. Um, And so, you know, people like to say like, oh, Max Blumenthal mocked victims of war crimes and chemical weapons. But that's 
that's not true. He's, you know, made light of and, and called into question whether these things really happened. And, and uh, there's also, you know, these people who say that, you know, um, he's a genocide denier, but, but he, he's not because there was no Sunni, ge- they're talking about, of course, the Sunni genocide in Syria, which is, it never happened. There was no Sunni genocide. And in fact, the opposition um, has uh, been the genocidal ones. You look at uh, various oppositional leader statements regarding the uh, Alawite minority, and you see that they have explicitly called for genocide and have been given a uh, glowing press by uh, Western media institutions um, to, uh, despite that. So um, it's, you know, it's, it's a, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I don't mean to cut you off. I just know that, you know, we can talk about Syria as an issue for forever and we can, you know, kind of get lost down that hole in a way. But I wanted to pull back just a second and uh, jump in because, you know, I what interests me is, you know, especially for the purposes of this interview, is not so much the conflict between, you know, people who uh, support, you know, uh, what they see as like the free Syrian army and, uh, you know, what they still, uh, what some people still see as, you know, the Syrian revolution in a lot of these places. But it's more, you know, why do these different groups of people align on different sides of this conflict, which, you know, whatever you think of it, obviously has so many international regimes fingers in it, right? There are so many invested interests in it. And I wanted to ask you first, just to give a little more context on this, uh, a little bit about the uh, Max Blumenthal book tour for the management of savagery, but more I'm interested in like why has the intercept? Do you think do you think that like there has been you know a concerted effort by Omidyar and uh, his friends in the U.S. government to uh, shape the intercept in this way, or do you think there's another reason that they end up promoting these stories? Well, let, let me get to the intercept and then I'll talk a little bit about uh, the management of savagery. Totally. So you know I, I think that uh, the intercept has a diversity of uh, views held by its staff. Uh, I think that you look at people like Green- Glenn Greenwald, who I've criticized before, and he what? has... Uh, Glenn Greenwald? What's wrong with him? <laughs> well, uh, let's, I, I don't want to rehash any criticisms, you know, it's uh, let's uh, keep it professional. But, I, you know, I think that he and Murtaza Hussein, for example, share very different views on what's going on in Syria. Mm-hmm. And uh, Greenwald's views are much closer to those of Max and myself, uh, yet he's not really uh, pilloried like like Max is. So I just want to say that mm-hmm. about the intercept. But regarding the management of savagery, uh, and this actually goes back to what I was saying about the opposition uh, kind of, you know, explicitly becoming bedfellows with people who have called for genocide. And we see that with the Syrian American Council, which was uh, the um, it's a, it's a pro regime change lobby group based out of Washington, D.C. They were kind of like driving this campaign to have uh, a bookstore in D.C. called Politics and Prose cancel the event for his book launch. And, uh, you know, they've actually hosted people who have called on Al Jazeera of, of, of all places, which is, you know, funded by the Qatari government. They've called for the genocide of Alawis, um to like, it's, you know, saying it's the right of Sunnis to um, slaughter them and, and drive them out of Syria. Um, and that sort of thing. So they, and I would call it, this is actually another phrase from Max, anarcho-neocons, which is kind of like a a little, a little bit of a joke, but it's actually not that much of a joke. Right. Uh, There's, you know, a group of people uh, in um, New York City that have been really in strong support of, a a group of anarchists, actually, who have been in very strong support of 
uh, the Syrian opposition and its regime change goals, uh, basically from the beginning. Um, one person in particular who was, I, I don't know if they were, if she was involved with this uh, cancellation of the management of savagery, but she did previously have um, an anarchist bookstore in uh, New York City called Blue Stockings cancel a viewing of uh, Max's a documentary on uh, the 2014 Israeli war on Gaza, uh, which was killing Gaza. Um, and her name is Molly Crabapple. And, you yeah, know, I was going to say. If you look into her history, for once she smeared me, I covered a, a protest against the White Helmets one time, and she uh, she actually accused me of participating in that protest, which I did not. And another time, she actually doxed a UN aid worker who was living in Erbil, Iraq, and, and writing under a pseudonym about the Syria conflict. And she, she had her doxed and subjected her to reprisal from violent rebels. I think that, um, and this is this is something I've been trying to understand a little bit better but i think that a lot of these people who rose to prominence out of occupy zuccotti park in new york city they weren't really get vetted and they become kind of leaders on the left or leaders in alternative journalism despite their questionable actions you look at somebody like tim pool or cassandra fairbanks or uh you know there there's just all uh, luke radowski is another one um those are those are on the right spectrum but uh, then on the left you see people uh in groups like global revolution and Molly Crabapple, um, and Global Revolution ha was uh, promoting neo-Nazi, and uh, I think it was the Azov Battalion, actually, during the Euromaidan. Mm. And so you see this kind of unprincipled, blind support for protest movements and revolution, uh, despite its consequences. And, and we've seen what that has done already. We saw what that did to Libya, you know? Um, and so it's good to be skeptical of, of these uprisings, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it has a lot in common for me, or it um, resonates a lot for me with uh, Francis Stoner Saunders' Cultural Cold War book and this weaponization by not just the CIA, but, you know, the general foreign policy establishment in the U.S., their weaponization of what they called the non-communist left, you know, these people who right. see, uh, you know, who have these uh, basic... Uh, uh, attractions to freedom and horrors at totalitarianism and end up being, uh, you know, end up associating themselves sometimes consciously, uh, sometimes, you know, without, totally without their knowledge on the side of U.S. foreign policy. So, you know, some of the places you're talking about in your article, like, people might not immediately understand if they listen to this show and they're as horrified by the Duterte regime in the Philippines as we are, uh, they might not understand what's wrong with omitting are funding, you know, an oppositional journalist there, right? It's only when you start to realize that she has these associations with the foreign policy establishment and that there might be some other interest behind Omidyar's funding of this website that has this bizarre mood meter to track non-rational reactions in news consumers, uh, then you might start to wonder, okay, you know, is this still funding that we should be welcoming? Right, and, and you know, um, the, the woman that you're referring to, the editor-in-chief of Rappler, uh, Maria Ressa, I mean, she's been giving talks at the Atlantic Council and, and places like that, and, right. you know, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the Atlantic Council, but just to just to like lay it out there, I mean, it's uh, it's one of the most hawkish and most powerful think tanks in DC, and it it's it's a neocon think tank, and it's funded by 
defense contractors, Saudi Arabia, I believe the UAE, anyways, Gulf monarchies. Mm -hmm. And it's consistently promoting regime change and, and Washington's aims. So, you know, again, this like I, I there's a lot of journalists who are named in, in this article. And my my intention wasn't to smear journalists. It, it was to just kind of showcase their interests in some cases, and in other cases, talk about their bosses. Absolutely. And I think one thing that's fascinating to me about the whole the whole interest in Omidyar and just his whole story, uh, I think you did a great job of, it, it was almost below the surface, but the way you framed this series of articles, starting with this meeting in Canada, that, you know, at first you're like, wait, uh, is this about Omidyar? But it's this meeting of a semi-secret workshop in Canada to talk about how to dole out a news industry bailout in Canadian government subsidies. That's basically, a, from my understanding, it's to uh, address the crisis in journalism right now that, you know, the sources of funding for a lot of these places are drying up, that the Facebook and Google monopolies are, you know, taking all their ad money, uh, independent media is dying, and even legacy media is having a harder time funding itself in a, you know, kind of traditional capitalist, uh, you make a product cheap and sell it high method. And so, you know, th this crisis of like, where do journalists get their funding is not only uh, a problem for people who are interested, the voices we might lose, but it also lets us accept these roles for other funders who end up influencing who gets a voice and what those people talk about. So I think it's really interesting to talk about, you know, Omidyar's role in journalism because, you know, in a way, like, and I've heard this from uh, comedy writers too, right? People at The Onion say, before they were brought up, bought up by uh, Univision or <laughs> private equity or whatever monsters are now eating them up. You know, Onion people used to say, like, I wish Jeff Bezos would bail us out, you know? Like, I wish we would have right. just some tech billionaire buy us and, like, fund us and be our patron. It's kind of the way culture has worked before capitalism, and it seems to be the way it's starting to work in a financialized economy, too, is, like, you just can't fund yourself in an economy that's dominated by states and monopolies, and so you end up getting in bed with these people. When there is no, you know, like, socialist utopia that can uh, fund, you know, the new art or whatever, the only people available with that kind of resource are people like the eBay billionaire, you know? Right. And I, I think it's interesting. I, I, you know, it's one thing that I want to talk, you know, I want to uh, hear from you in particular about it, because I think you can speak to this from a really interesting place as someone who's worked at places like RT and Sputnik, which obviously are big targets in the new Red Scare and the new Cold War that's revving up and have been totally De there's been an attempt to totally delegitimize them in U.S. media. And, you, you know, you even talk about uh, this uh, incident where, um, or uh, no, it wasn't you, it was um, Max Blumenthal I saw at the uh, alt-book launch who talked about, you know, what was it, RT being forced to register as a foreign agent, stuff like that. You know, I'm aware of all those attacks, but in a way, I mean, that's another alternative for, for journalists, right, is state funding from governments like Russia and like Qatar. You know, there's a lot of people who want to go into journalism and AJ plus is the one who's hiring right like right. I, I want to see sort of um, if you have an opinion on what that does to journalism too well you know I think that uh, in a healthy environment uh, there would be like a diversity of options 
or, you know, some other model. I'm sure there's some, there's got to be some possibility that I can't imagine, which actually makes this work, but it's clear that it's not working right now. And I, I think what we, you know, I've talked to a lot of journalists in DC over the years and they've asked me similar questions, but they've also, you know, each Wherever you work, you're going to encounter your own set of unique issues based off of its funding structure, whether that be ads, ad revenue, whether you get your money from ad revenue, well, then you're going to have to turn out a lot of clickbait, right? Mm -hmm. I know, I know that at like raw story, for example, they ask their writers to do eight articles a day, Mm -hmm. which is just insane. And then, you know, there's nonprofit media. So you can go work for Think Progress where you have the Center for American Progress, you know, kind of bullying you into a... not being critical of um, their funder, which is uh, one of the, you know, the UAE, for example, is one of their funders. Mm-hmm. Or you can, uh, you know, have an outlet uh, like uh, The Intercept, where um, uh, you have shareholders. Um, the Intercept is actually kind of different from a lot of those because uh, it only has one shareholder, and that's Pure Omidyar. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, a lot of outlets have, you know, a, a good number of shareholders. And, and if you talk to journalists who work there, you know, a lot of their their most common complaint is that they got stifled because they were going to piss off a shareholder. Mm -hmm. And so then there's state media and that, you know, has its own unique set of issues. Um, whether that be, uh, you know, RT's European coverage, which I'm not always, you know, very fond of, Mm. or, uh, Al Jazeera's Syria coverage, which like, you know, of course that the same government that is funding Al Jazeera and funding the white helmets is like not going to have, a very balanced coverage of the white helmets. So it's not a question I have an answer for. And, you know, I really hope that we can find one because it's very obvious that shit's not working. I think that anyone who um, is like looking to get into journalism and like trying to figure out which kind of outlet they want to work for, you know, should, should get on Twitter and try to get as many followers as possible on Patreon because reader funded is like really reader funded is the only way you're guaranteed get and you're not promised it but you're guaranteed you know some some kind of independence the other the other ways you're beholden to clicks or you're beholden to shareholders or you're beholden to the government and and you know i i should also say that you know al jazeera i I, i've never worked there but i have worked at archie and sputnik and I, i i did not get a lot of interference from my bosses I really didn't. So I don't want to say that like it's always a problem, but uh, it can be. And certainly there's a, a lot of coverage from RT that I don't agree with. And there's also a lot that I do. It's actually funny how they've uh, kind of been uh, accused of various conspiracies uh, in dealing with Assange. There was a Podesta email uh, drop one, one day. I was working there when the Podesta emails uh, were dropping. And it was, you know, they had uh, WikiLeaks hadn't tweeted out that there was a new dump yet, but we had writers that were refreshing the page, you know, like every 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so there was one one dump on one one day in particular that uh, we were the first ones to break the news of it. And because that happened, there was a, a massive conspiracy spawned that, by that. And journalists attacking us left and right for uh, conspiring with WikiLeaks, which was not the case at all. And that this actually happened again with um, RT's sister site. It's a video agency called Roughly. They only do video. And uh, Roughly filmed the arrest of Julian Assange. Uh, and they were accused of uh, having advance notice for that, mm-hmm. which they didn't. They were just staking it out for an entire week. 
Yeah, like the cops were. Right, right. And so, you know, I think that there's a tendency that a lot of journalists have to be a bit opportunistic and and kind of to eat our own. And I'd like to see less of that. And that, you know, I may have fed that a bit with uh, these Omidyar articles. But I uh, was also, in a sense, punching back against some of the lesser scrutinized um, organizations here. So I think that this funding structure that I detailed by Omidyar, where there's like two dozen media outlets that have each guy and hundreds of thousands of dollars from him that's like that's only i i hope that this information which is truthful will only help further a dialogue about what we need to do with this industry in order to make it work yeah i think that's great i can only speak to our sources of funding which you know we are totally (laughs) listener funded as well and that comes with baggage too you would not believe what kind of video games we have to say are not shitty on this podcast (laughs) Um, well, Alex, I, I, you know, we're already pretty over time. Uh, thank you so much for staying with us this long. I did just want to say uh, as a last thing, maybe it's hard because if you're not following the right people or following the right kind of online conflicts, a lot of this stuff uh, can get missed, even if you're listening to a podcast like this. So I just wanted to like give a little context to people. Uh, Max Blumenthal, who is the co-author of this a uh, series of articles with Alex wrote this book, uh, The Management of Savagery. You know, the title has a fascinating history, too. Uh, it comes from, like, a, a, a... What is it? It's like a memo that might have been written by Al-Zawahiri or something like that. But it's it's about, you know, uh, the U.S.'s kind of planned chaos in the world uh, and the foreign policy uh, machine, you know, run out of Washington. And Politics and Prose was supposed to be the place where he had this launch for the book tour, and and because of all this pressure from different groups, interested parties, Politics and Prose first delayed the event, and then they did end up supporting it at a different location, is my understanding. But basically, we were supposed to have Alex talk to us last week, and he had to cancel because he was live-streaming the event for Mint Press. So the connection there is pretty close to our hearts. And I think it's interesting, a lot of what I've seen him get criticized for, you did a good job of not naming a whole lot of names of that Brooklyn clique. Um, but I, I have a couple of guesses as to who you're referring to, and I've seen Max criticized for a lot of things, some of which, you know, I do think may have crossed the line, like, this is something Ben Norton in this alt book launch makes reference to, is that Max, like most of us, you know, in journalism or podcasting, is a failed comedian or some kind of failed writer, and, you know, like, sometimes when he's writing about, like, looking for the communist dictatorship at a luxury mall in Caracas... That's great, and um, that kind of instinct is fantastic and comes off well. Um, other times, uh, you know, he's done stuff like when people were posting pictures of, uh, like, people in Idlib, I think it was, putting plastic bags over their head to protect themselves from, you know, chemical attacks was the story. Max put a brown paper bag over his head and said he was protecting himself from, uh, you know, war propaganda and regime change propaganda. And, like, a lot of people, you know, saw that as... Uh, denial of the chemical attacks from Assad or, uh, you know, making light of uh, chemical attacks or uh, attacks on civilians. It's one of those things that because
because I am so removed from the reporting and because it's so complicated, it's really hard for me to judge. And it can a lot of it can be kind of shocking uh, for people outside of the context. But you know, the seminary co-op in Chicago, I realized when you know doing research for this interview was supposed to have Max Blumenthal speak about his book uh, this coming Wednesday, I think, and they canceled the event. And you know, I think that's really too bad. Um, I really would have liked to see him talk on this stuff. It's a lot that I think you won't see covered other places. So I'm really glad that uh, you got to work with him. We didn't get to ask you about his like personal quirks or anything, but I'm really glad that you, Alex, and that Max, and uh, that the whole pseudo Asadist clique is out there uh, doing this work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Just to be clear, we're, we're not Asadists. I know, uh, I know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, and neither are we. We're not, you know, but like we are also not fans of regime change. And right. uh, I'm glad that you guys are out there challenging these orthodoxies and even these these bastions of what we see as resistance on the left, like the Intercept, challenging the influences that are behind them when they're not as clear. Unless you have any last words, thank you so much for coming on. It was a great pleasure to have you again. No, I, I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to talk about this stuff and, uh, you know, make, make a case. And I, I also appreciate some of your harder questions too because you know it is good to self-reflect i i don't think that it's possible for people to always act in good taste and certainly i've uh, i've been guilty of that as well but you know i think if you work in this industry uh you're used to dealing with a lot of really troubling shit whether you're looking at videos of, of dead kids or uh starving people you know it's very tolling and uh Sometimes the humor uh, gets a little bit out of hand when it shouldn't, and you should be a little bit more tasteful. But I don't think it's, it's worth canceling anyone over, especially somebody like Max, who um, has consistently been good on the facts and uh, done some really, uh, really impressive reporting. And I would just uh, leave a final note that um, people can find that live stream of his book talk if, uh, if the event in your city has been canceled. Uh, you can go online. I live streamed it for Mint Press News on Facebook. And it's just chock full of facts. It's, and, you know, talking to Max sometimes, you're just like blown away by how much you don't know. And um, that's what his book is is like. It's like a distillation of that. And it's, it's really fascinating. So I would encourage people to check that out. Absolutely. And uh, please, everyone check out. We're going to post the articles in the episode description. But they're long, but they're worth the read, this series on Omidyar. So, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks, guys.